Good morning, church. If you would take your Bibles and open up to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 14 and 15. Today we'll be taking a one-week break from our series in the book of Exodus in order to think about what I've entitled Togetherness in the Midst of COVID-19. And so just wanting to focus in on what togetherness looks like as we approach this new season, I want to have you look at Romans 14 and 15 with me. I would encourage you to keep your Bible open because we will be looking a lot at Romans 14 and kind of bouncing around. But today I'll begin by reading Romans 15 verses 4 to 7. I also encourage you, I've created an outline that you pull that up. It's on our website or it's sent in the Sunday email that you would take that and you would look at that as a means of helping you follow along. But let's look at Romans chapter 15 verses 4 to 7 and then I'll pray. The word of God says this. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, I ask in this moment that you would soften our hearts. You would pull away any tension or any emotional barrier we might have to receiving what you have for us today. Receiving your love and receiving your careful attention to anything that stands between us and you and anything that stands between us and a brother or sister in Christ. Father, I ask that you would comfort and encourage and fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we might humbly receive and boldly live out what you encourage us with from your word. Teach us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we're going to do is we're going to start with the problem and then move to the perspective. The problem and the perspective. And the problem is this. There is almost an endless supply of things to disagree over. And you might be like, great, way to start. No, follow me now. Almost an endless supply of things to disagree over. Let me just say two words, Coke or Pepsi. Yep, I know there's probably some reverberations around your household right now, but I have some others. What about, what's the best sport? Basketball, football, baseball, soccer, cricket. Which one are you gonna choose? Or best music, classical, jazz, hip hop, R&B, country, which one? What about the best place to live, city or country? What about the best place to vacation, mountains or beach? We can disagree over almost anything. Just go to try to paint a wall in your house and you'll have a disagreement potentially over paint colors. Or if you're trying to relocate things in your house and position things, you might have a disagreement of where things go. Or what about what's for dinner tonight? We can have a disagreement over that. There is the problem. There is an almost an endless supply of things for us to disagree over. Now disagreements, they can be over small things that then become big things. Or they can be over big things that then can become explosive. But disagreements can be painful. They can leave us saying things we wish we wouldn't have said and feeling senses of regret. You can feel personally attacked, and sometimes you are. 
You can attack others really wanting them to understand your side of things and value your opinion. You can get angry or you can get sad. You can run away and not listen or you can refuse to stop talking and constantly pursue. And therein lies the problem. The problem is not as much that we disagree, but more about how we disagree. Because how we disagree will either display the beauty of Jesus and his power to unify his people, or it won't. And this is our greatest concern, that how we disagree is a living drama of God's greatness and of his love. And how will we portray the glory of our God? The problem is not as much that we disagree, but how we disagree. And so Paul not only kind of addresses this problem, but he gives us perspective. Here's the perspective. In summary form, Paul would state that disagreements are hard, but that they are common and that they are in all relationships, but also therefore they're in the church. In Romans 14 and 15, Paul explains probably this in summary form, that there will be times that we must agree to disagree. There are times that we must be fully convinced in our own minds, even though we agree to disagree, but we should welcome one another in unity and in love. So in Romans 14, Paul opens up a can of worms. And he takes an entire chapter, chapter to address the concept that there are areas where Christians will disagree over. And that's okay. But it should never compromise our unity and our love for one another. And so what he does is he takes time to describe a few disagreements that are happening within the body. And then he addresses two things. One, what we should guard against in the midst of disagreement, and two, what we should pursue in the midst of disagreement. What we should guard against in the midst of disagreement, and what we should pursue in the midst of disagreement. Let's focus in on first on what we should guard against, and we'll look at Romans 14, verses 1 and following. Romans 14, verse 1 says this, As for the one who is weak in faith, Welcome him or her. That is what we'll talk about, what to pursue. Welcome them. But not to quarrel over opinions. And that will be what to guard against. Here's what he says. One person believes that he may eat anything. Now, this idea is that there was a, a debate that some are free to eat whatever and others feel like the Jewish dietary laws are more restrictive. And so here he's saying one person believes they have the freedom to eat meat and eat pork, eat whatever, while the weak person, Paul says, eats only vegetables. They have a more restricted conscience on what they can eat. And this idea of strong and weak or freer and restricted conscience, he's speaking to believers. All of these people are believers. But one group just believes that they have some more freedoms while the other group believes that to live faithfully or according to their conscience, there are more restrictions. Now, these areas where they are disagreeing, we have to make, make it clear. These are not primary core doctrines, but they're also not unimportant issues. They're just not foundational issues. They are how Christians 
should live unto the Lord as they apply God's word to their lives. And this is crucial in our day as well. For him, it was Jewish dietary laws or what we'll see later or how you observe certain days and implement the Sabbath principle. For us, it can be some theological issues. It can be end times or the frequency of the Lord's Supper or how membership works. We might have some disagreements over that, but it also can be things like what school path is best, homeschool, public school, private school, or what foods are best, all natural, all unnatural, and everything in between. It could be, what about your political opinions? What do you choose there? Or what are the parameters that should be set upon your entertainment and what you watch or read or listen to? And even in this season, it can be on how we reopen, when we reopen, what that looks like. The list can go on. But the point here is that there are so many areas where some believe they have more freedom and others believe they have more restrictions. And so Paul here is instructing both groups. And now he is going to tell us what to guard against in the midst of these disagreements. Look at verse 3, Romans 14, verse 3. Let not the one who eats, that is the one who has a freer conscience, despise the one who abstains. They have a more restricted conscience. Why is he encouraging them not to despise? Well, because first, the freer conscience might be tempted to look down upon the one who is making all these extra unnecessary rules in their mind. And so what can happen is they can ridicule or they can make fun of or they can use sarcasm and put down. Now, there are places for sarcasm, but the midst of disagreement is not the place for it. And Paul is saying, do not despise your brother or sister because they have a different conscience. Paul also would say that there is this temptation when you are tempted to despise someone. If you ask why despise, it would be also because there are times that for the sake of love, you are free, but you restrict your freedom so that you don't cause another brother or sister to stumble. And that's what Romans 14 verse 13 points to is those times when even though you have a freer conscience, that freer conscience limits itself in the presence of the brother or sister so that you don't cause them to stumble. And so you can imagine that if that brother or sister who is more restricted, sometimes they might be living in a certain way. They might even speak to you in a certain way that makes you feel like you need to, you need to maybe be more restrictive and not as free, you could walk around with a sense of false guilt that you don't maybe necessarily need, but because you're interacting with them, you feel guilty. Or if you're constantly refraining from certain freedoms that you feel like you have, there can come a time when it shifts from love to maybe in the heart it shifts to resentment, that you now have to lay down certain things that you really should feel the freedom to do. At least that's the disagreement. The goal of the Christian is love and strengthening one another. So at times it'll mean you lay down your freedoms for the sake of a brother or sister. But Paul here is clear. For those who might have a freer conscience, 
don't despise. Don't ridicule. Don't resent. Don't put down. Don't despise. Another way one pastor said that we might be tempted to despise one another is that we moralize certain actions. What might that look like? Well, if someone is coming into your presence and they're wearing a mask, some might be tempted to say, well, they're wearing a mask in fear. If they really trusted God, they wouldn't wear a mask. Or others might be looking at those who don't wear masks and say, they don't care about people at all. And what have we done? We have taken some of these actions and we have put morals or motives upon people. And may we not despise one another as we put certain moral implications upon people's attempts to try to navigate distancing and precautions. Now, I just want to take this moment to say, you know, when we begin to gather together, no matter what that looks like in terms of numbers or whatever, it's just going to be awkward. You can imagine, right? Like some people feel this freedom like, oh, I want to hug you or, hey, let's do a fist bump. And others are like, six feet, please. Let's maybe shoot for 10. It's like, okay, we've got our disagreements on even what will be acceptable as we seek to gather together. And I encourage you just to embrace the awkwardness. I mean, I, there's so many times that I have walked around and I am smiling underneath my mask and I'm genuinely thinking they can see me smile, but they can't. And so that's going to be difficult when you're meaning to be smiling and all of a sudden you've got a mask on. And so some people might think you're against them or misunderstandings might happen. These things are all things that we must be aware of. But I just, embrace, I just encourage you to embrace the awkwardness. Sometimes we just need to laugh at the awkwardness. Some of you will go up to fist bump and others will be backing up. It's okay. It's okay. They are not saying that they don't like you or they don't love you or that they are being reckless if they choose another approach. May we not moralize. May we embrace the awkwardness and live freely in our fully convinced minds. Now, Paul also addresses not only to guard against despising, but he addresses the weak saying, do not judge. Look at it in verse three. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So the restricted conscience, the one who feels like they need to live by a few more boundaries, can be judgmental. Their conscience is not only restricted, but they are tempted to put their restrictions on the freer brother or sister as maybe this is a holier way to live or maybe the only holy way to live. And according to Paul, if that freer brother or sister doesn't necessarily agree with your conclusions, do not judge them or look down upon them. Now, the judgment can be anything from if you really knew God, you would act this way to more severe judgment that you are disobeying God and not believing or thinking like I think in my practice or in my thoughts. And if you don't repent, you will stand in judgment of God. Yeah, this is a big deal. Christians can be so convinced of their own position that they can look at other Christians and think they stand in the judgment of God, that they are being rebellious at their core. 
But these are not things that they are thinking differently about the gospel. They are thinking differently about secondary issues. And Paul says, don't judge because, verse 3, God has welcomed that free person into his family. And so he says, who are you, restricted conscience, to pass judgment on the servant of another? Or to say it in a different term, who are you, PG-only people, to judge those who watch PG-13? I know that's a silly example, but you get the idea. There's a sense of a, a freer conscience and a more restricted conscience. Or who are you that says this is the best way to school to judge those who say, no, I have several different options when it comes to schooling my children. These are examples, and these examples are attempts at a broader application of Romans 14 to our current day. So as we apply it, it doesn't mean that the freer is always right and the weak is wrongly limited. It's more about good, better, and best versus right and wrong. It's more about this general principle of free versus restricted conscience. Look at verse 4 with me. Paul goes on to say to the weak who are tempted to judge, it is before his own master that he stands and falls. Paul later goes on in Romans 14 verse 10 to say, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. What's Paul saying in Romans 14 verse 4 when he says that it is before his own master that he stands or falls? He's basically saying, leave the judging up to that person's master. And that person's master is not you. It's God. Summary, you are freed from judging because God is the judge. It's not your job. It's his. So be free. And in the midst of these warnings, Paul is found at the end of verse 4, shooting a gospel arrow right through the midst of the controversy and tension. And it is a beautiful arrow of grace. Look at it. Romans 14, verse 4. And he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. He will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. So what's the summary? Those with the freer conscience, even though living in that freer conscience, you might be found to stumble. And those in the weaker uh, conscience, the more restricted conscience, you might be tempted to legalism. There is this promise that I believe applies. It's addressed to the, to the stronger brother or sister here, but it applies to us all. We lean upon a God who promises to uphold us and he will cause us to get to the end. And I just want to lay out here for us that the Lord will not let us go. The Lord's love has a firm grip on his children. He is our protector. He upholds us and he will carry us to the end. I can't tell you what comfort God infused in me as I read that promise over and over. It means the Lord is my righteousness, not the opinions of others. The Lord is the one I lean on to get me to the end, and he will get us to the end. Christian, cast your life upon him. He is sure. He is rock solid. He is firm. He is forgiving. He is loving. Turn to him and rest in his love because this is a wonderful gospel promise. He will uphold you. And the Lord is able to make you stand. 
our standing on that last day is found in the arms and the hands of a strong God who cares for us. So remember, disagreements are going to happen. That's not the problem. The problem is how we disagree. And Paul is telling us what to guard against in the midst of disagreements, guard against despising, guard, guard against judging. And the last one he says is guard against quarreling. Look at Romans 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Not to quarrel over opinions. And what this means is, this is how you talk face-to-face -face with someone. This is how you're, you post on social media. This is how you talk about people behind their backs. The question you've got to ask yourself is, am I quarrelsome? And I was reading an article by Kevin DeYoung entitled, The Distinguishing Marks of a Quarrelsome Person. And I've attached it to our Sunday email, and it's going to be on our website with uh, near the outline there uh, that we have for the sermon. And he lists 12 possibilities of what a quarrelsome person looks like. And here I list a few. Number one, you defend every conviction with the same degree of intensity. You've never met a hill you won't die on, end quote. Number two, quote, you are incapable of seeing nuances and you do not believe in qualifying statements. Everything in life is black and white without any gray. Number three, he says, you never give the benefit of the doubt. You do not try to read arguments in context. You put the worst possible construct on others' motives. And when there is a less flattering interpretation, you go for that one. And I'll stop here because this one's addressed in Romans 14. The fourth one that I'll list out of the 12, he says this, quote, you have no unarticulated positions. Do people know what you think of everything? They shouldn't. That's why you have a journal or a prayer closet or a dog. And I laughed at that one. I thought that was funny. The point here is, is that if you're not sure if you're quarrelsome, you should ask. Ask trusted individuals, not just those who agree with you, but those maybe more mature in the faith, those who would encourage you and, and be for you. But ask, because we do not want to be found as quarrelsome. And Paul is addressing in Romans 14, verse 22, this idea that we should not say everything we think because when we do, it can lead to hurting others. It can invite quarreling in. Romans 14, 22 says this, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Those are actions or words. So we don't share everything we are thinking. Our aim in sharing our thoughts is love. And some of us, we share way too much. And others of us, we share way too little. And we need a culture that listens and refrains from speaking sometimes, but also shares our thoughts. But the goal here for Paul is when we disagree in the sharing of those opinions, we must guard against judging and despising and quarreling. But Paul is also not only laying out what we should guard against, but he is also laying out what we should pursue. Paul is also laying out what we should pursue. And look at verse five with me. Verse five, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. And now here he goes on on this is what we should pursue. 
Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, this is crucial because many times when we have these discussions, some people think, well, that just means I don't need to have an opinion or I don't need to share opinions. No, the opposite is true. Paul says you actually need to have a robust, fully convinced mind. You need to have your an opinion. Now, what does he mean? What is this fully convinced mind? Well, first of all, Paul is not saying that everything is up to just a sense of conscience. There are things that we are to agree over that should not be areas of disagreement. And I'll list a few. Let's start with God. There is one God, three persons. God is Trinity. What about the gospel? Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man. And he came born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died in our place. He rose from the dead three days later, according to the scriptures. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he will return again to judge the living and the dead. And he will usher his children, because of faith alone, he will usher his children into a new heavens and a new earth to live with him forever. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. So the invitation is to repent and believe upon him. That's not up for debate. It's not fuzzy. It must be agreed to by all. Another is that the Bible is the word of God, infallible and inerrant. God's breathed out words to us, binding upon our lives. And the Bible tells us it's not negotiable. The greatest aim of our life is the glory of God and that we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he tells us that the second commandment is like it, that we should love our neighbor as ourself. We should consider others more significant than ourselves. And he also tells us that the great commission is a command upon his people that we should make disciples of all peoples. These things are not fuzzy. They are not unclear. They are binding upon every Christian. They are not up for disagreement, and we must hold firm to these convictions. However, there are secondary doctrines or secondary issues, and even as some people parse them, there are third and fourth level issues where we will see things differently because of interpretation or application, and we are supposed to work through those with open Bible and in prayer and be fully convinced in our minds and live in harmony and unity with one another. That happens best in community, but we must be fully convinced in our own minds. This is what Paul is saying. If you think you can only eat vegetables, then be fully convinced. Don't do it because your mom said so or your pastor said so or because your friend said so. You develop a fully convinced mind. And if you think we should reopen now, be fully convinced. And if you think we should wait, be fully convinced. But in that full conviction, there's two qualifiers that Paul seems to be pressing upon that fully convinced mind. Qualifier number one, that that fully convinced mind should be filled with faith unto the Lord. And two, that that fully convinced mind should be clothed in love. So let's use this kind of whole re-entry struggle, what in the world, that tension that could come. Let's use it as an example for what a fully convinced mind might look like filled with faith. Now remember, the problem is not that we disagree as much as it is how we disagree. And so as I've been listening in the church, the debate is not our 
There are multiple commands that are binding upon the church. The question is, how do we apply this situation to those commands? These are things that I've heard almost all agree with. Romans 13, 1, this command is binding upon us, one and following. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. It couldn't be clearer. We must submit to the government. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 through 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together or some translations say not forsaking together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near then there's Matthew 22:39 love your neighbor as yourself Philippians 2 consider others more significant than yourself and these commands are all binding on us we will not be trapped into diminishing the importance of God's commands. But there's a real question. A real question that we ask in these days. What do we do when these commands seem to be at odds? What do we do when the government that we're supposed to submit to commands us to what it seems like to disobey God and not gather? What do we do when our gathering seems to not love our neighbor and probably is spreading a virus. And there's so many different positions, but there are some who love God and who love his word. And they state that although we don't want to make an exception to either command, we make an exception for a short time to not gather to love our neighbor. But this group says, but now it is too long. The government is overreaching and hurting many in the process with lost wages or lost access to each other, creating significant loneliness. And most importantly, the loss of worship together in person. Surely it's more important to gather in worship of our great God than to obey our government. Our government is commanding us to disobey God. This group will go on to say, we have missionaries who face this. And what do they do is they conduct underground churches that are in direct defiance to the government. So we have categories for this. And there's even biblical examples such as Daniel or Paul or the Hebrew midwives or Rahab where they defied the government. So this group would say we relax the rules of submitting to the government because we have bowed long enough and it's time now or it's time really soon that we might have to participate in civil disobedience for the command to meet is of greater weight. And that's how some feel. But there's others, others who love God and love his word. And they state that although they don't want to make an exception to any of God's commands, they make an exception for a short time for the loving of neighbor, so they don't gather in order to love neighbor. Now, this group thinks and recalls that historically Christians have run into disease situations thinking they were loving, but now we find out that it can only perpetuate a disease. 
So they might say, surely it makes more sense that for a brief time, rather than spreading sickness to others or breaking the back of the healthcare system, we stop gathering in person. The command in Hebrews 10 is right and good, but it was not just to gather. It was written because there were people wanting to forsake the gathering. But this group says, we're not wanting to forsake the gathering. As one professor at Southeastern Seminary, Ron Jour Locke says, it's not forsaking the gathering together to distance now because we are doing it to gather later. So the commands of Hebrews chapter 10 has as its foundation that we stir one another up to love and good deeds and we hold fast our conviction. So this group says, we will for a short season, we will do those things through virtual meetings and recordings. But we are longing to get together and we're praying for that time, but we will choose to submit to the government and listen to medical professionals and we think that we should hold off and wait a little bit longer. And now we have differing opinions. And some of you might be saying, well, I believe a little bit of both those, or I might, I believe one of those ways, but I would probably take this out and say it a little differently. And all of that only proves my point. <laughs> the conversation shows that there are so many ways to view this by faith. They come from love. They come holding the scriptures high. And they come with conviction that they are loving God and loving their neighbor. And so Paul says this, let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. The problem is not differing viewpoints. The problem is how we differ. Be fully convinced in your own mind, but let that conviction be one that is filled with faith. And Paul tells us, Romans 14, verse 23, Whatever is not from faith is sin. And so he's telling us we must be filled with faith as we hold this conviction. What does that look like? Well, Romans chapter 14, same chapter, verse 6 tells us, listen to this. The one who observes a day, observes it in, say it with me, in honor to the Lord. And the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. Whatever your position might be, it must be filled with faith and your posture must be, this is unto the Lord. I'm doing this with the Lord in mind. I'm doing this for his glory. I'm doing this so that others would know and love God. This is what is important. Look at verse seven of Romans 14. He says this, for none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Paul is saying, your fully convinced mind is a convinced mind that is surrendered to the Lord. You hold your opinions before God as unto the Lord. This means you are keenly aware that you live and you die to the Lord. That is that Jesus is the Lord of your life and he is the Lord of your death. And so this is crucial. Hear me. You hold your conviction, not because others hold it, but because you hold this conviction so fully convinced that on the last day you will say, I did my best. I did what I did to honor the Lord. 
So when he says full conviction, a fully convinced mind, this is a to the Lord convinced mind. And on that last day, we will not hold up our opinions or our rightness or a scale that shows how much righter we were than somebody else. That is not what we will hold up. No, we will only have faith in Jesus and his righteousness to lean on. And using the words of Romans 14, we'll say something like, Christ upheld me, and that is my only hope. So Paul just wants to underscore the need for humility as we develop our own convictions with passion. And he does that by pointing us to keep in mind the last day. So remember where we are. He's told us not only what to guard against, but what to pursue. And what we should pursue is a fully convinced mind that is filled with faith and, number two, clothed in love. We've got to have love in the forefront of our minds as we develop and live out our convictions. And so I've summarized this clothed in love with what does love look like with our fully convinced minds? Love laments, love listens, and love learns. Love laments, love listens, and love learns. Love laments. Look at verse 15 of Romans 14 with me. It says, If my brother is grieved by what I eat, or in this case, drink, or watch, or post, or say, then I am no longer walking in love. Do you see what he's saying? The highest chief aim is to walk in love. And there are sometimes the way we act and the way we talk and the way we post, all of these things, they grieve a genuine brother or sister. And he says, be mindful of others' grief. This shows that disagreements can hurt. But it also shows that we should be talking about disagreements because how in the world can you even know somebody's grieving unless you're talking and listening? We must be a culture that can talk about opinions and talk about our hurts, but we must talk about them in love. The point here is that our fully convinced mind needs to care about the griefs of our brothers and sisters more than our opinions. Love laments. It grieves for another's pain. It cries to God for the pains of others. We must lament. I invite us to lament before we defend. Love not only laments, but love listens. How will you know your brother or sister is grieved? unless he or she is talking and you are listening. We must care more about people than our ideas or opinions. Fully convinced in our minds is still clothed in love. We need to listen and lament, but we also need to learn. Lament, grieve, cry with one another, listen to one another, learn. Be fully convinced by faith, but be humble. Be a humble learner. 
That happens when you listen and lament. When you're hearing people's struggles, when you're crying and weeping with people and taking those tears to the Lord on behalf of others' grief, all of a sudden, you are a learner. You're beginning to understand their struggle. And a learner then can sometimes even change their full conviction. A learner can sometimes take their stricter conscience and it can sometimes become freer or it can take their freer conscience and it can sometimes become more restricted. But the point is we must leave room for process because none of us have it all figured out. When we look back at this season on how reopening should happen, we will all probably look back and realize there were some things right about what we said and there were some things wrong about what we said. We're just not going to get everything right. This is why Paul gives us the perspective that each one of us should pursue a fully convinced mind, filled with faith, clothed in love. But finally, he tells us that not only is that what we are to pursue, and he cautions us against what to guard against, he wants us to understand that we should welcome one another. There's difficulty in welcoming one another because you know what's interesting is that, let's just take this example, those who are fine to wait together, believing they're not forsaking the gathering together because they want together and they're just seeking to act in love, they might be, according to this paradigm, the freer conscience. And they must be careful not to ridicule or despise. But many who hold that position are also those who might be more cautious when it comes to the spread of the disease. They might be more restricted when it comes to gloves and masks and social distancing. So in that sense, they might have a more restricted understanding. But what's also interesting is that those who want to gather now and not wait until the governor's order changes, they are more restricted in their conscience. Online for many of them is probably not faithful and they they must be careful not to judge those who are not petitioning or not gathering and who are fine to wait a little longer. But at the same time, some of them are freer when it comes to health restrictions, less distancing maybe, less masks, less gloves. Now this doesn't apply to everyone, but my point is this, it's really complicated. You can in some areas have a stricter conscience and in other areas have a freer conscience and Paul understands this. This is why he says what we pursue is a fully convinced mind filled with faith and in love. But what we should pursue is welcoming one another, accepting one another, loving one another. Not emotionally distant, distancing ourselves from one another. When he says welcome one another, it is a picture of care and love. Look at Romans 14.1. He says this. As for the one who is weak, welcome him. We do that because God has welcomed us. Romans 14, 3, for God has welcomed him. And then the passage that I began with in Romans 15, it says this. Whatever was written, this is Romans 15, verses 4 to 7. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 
May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together with one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In college, I sang in a choir. And that choir traveled around and it was a big choir. So there were some pieces of music that we worked on that had eight parts that we had to work on. And so there were some days when we would come into practice and we would be divided up into sectionals and different parts would work on their specific notes and their specific part apart from the others. But then after we had spent a lot of hard work, we would come back together. And inevitably, when we would come back together, there were some groups that didn't know their notes as well or other groups that knew their notes, but they didn't know their rhythms very well. Some groups were louder than others and other groups were too quiet. And what the conductor would do is they, he would stand back and he would try to work on those imbalances. But I tell you, after that work, there were few more beautiful things than all of these voices, not seeking to be heard individually, but all of these voices working together to be one voice in all of our varied harmonies, one voice to show the beauty of this song or to compliment the artist that we were singing his or her song. And what we have here is this image that God lays before us. It's going to take work. We will have differing opinions and we will hurt each other. Some will be too quiet and others will be too loud. Others will say the right things in the wrong way and others will say the wrong things in humble ways. Some will be angry and others will be grieved. This is life. But through the instruction and encouragement of the scriptures, through fully convinced mind, clothed in faith and in love, through repentance, when we judge and despise and quarrel, or through forgiveness when we've been wronged by those attitudes, through the hard work of receiving the love of Jesus Christ and extending it to others, and allowing him to heal and unify, we press on. We press on, as Philippians says, in one mind, in one spirit, striving side by side for the sake of the gospel, and we sing the glories of Jesus together. We sing about his majesty together. We sing about his faithfulness together. We sing of his gospel. We sing with our very lives. And according to Romans 15, we are to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together we may with one voice, one voice, different gifts, one voice, different opinions, one voice, different politics, one voice, different re-entry desires, but with one voice, because there's something greater than our individual voices, because one voice together, together, we may together with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says that that chorus, that chorus of harmonious proclamation begins when we welcome one another in the midst of our differing opinions. He says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And so the Bible is clear. We and the world around us will know that we are Christians by our love for one another. So let's welcome one another with a fully convinced mind, clothed in faith and in love, Let's guard against judging and despising and quarreling. In all of this, we do this for the unity of the body, 
but ultimately for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, please, I pray that you would strengthen us as a people, that we would be sensitive to your Holy Spirit, that, Father, you would lead us forward in unity for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.